This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. disingenuous behavior in UX today. You've heard me say it before. I'm saying it again today. My guest today is not one of those people. She is the real deal. I love people that love the discipline. I really appreciate She's never heard me say all this before, so she's on camera like blushing and stuff. But I really appreciate <laughs> I really appreciate what she does, what other people do to help the discipline. I'm not trying to be a superstar. I do things because I feel I have an indebtedness to the discipline. I'm not trying to be heard as much as I'm trying to help. And I don't really don't care. I couldn't care less about me and all of this. And so selfless people make me excited. And, and so I'm happy to have another of what I consider to be one of the selfless people in UX. Uh, I'm going to let her introduce herself. I'll tell you who she is, though. Amy Santee, Welcome. Uh, on the show today, she is a career strategist and a coach. If you are getting busy in UX, if you are trying to get up to speed in UX, if you are trying to understand which way we're supposed to go, uh, then this is one of the people that you should definitely connect with. She has deemed herself, I'm reading her profile right now, a <laughs> personal growth nerd. That is cool. Wanting to see people grow. And she says she is radically inspired by people. I think we are definitely on the same wavelength there. That's what I like to do. I do what I do to help people get better. I do what I do to help people achieve higher heights and deeper depths. And so today with me, uh, Amy Santee is here. We're going to have our talking shop session today, unscripted this time again, like we did with Dr. Giles recently. But uh, Amy, as Debbie Levitt always says, tell us who you are and why we should care. Debbie Levitt setting the standards for UX podcast intros everywhere. <laughs> that was such a nice introduction, Darren. Guess I was sitting here with a big grin and smiling, and it felt very nice. So thank you for all of that. Um, and you know, just back at you, I really appreciate all of the work that you're doing as well to further the discipline. And you know, it's your passion is very clear and your your expertise and your generosity and all of the great content that you put out there to really help people understand what's important about UX and like you said furthering the practice and the discipline especially when there's you know a lot of variety and a lot yeah, of paths yeah. and a lot of perspectives which i think is beautiful and really important and i love to see the evolution 
But yeah, there's a lot of things that we kind of need to be thinking about to maintain quality, um, quality assurance testing, if you will, on the discipline. Um, and you know, what are, what are best practices? What are the fundamentals that we need to know? Um, what makes our work, uh, of, of quality? How, how do we define what quality means? Yes. So thank you. You know, I really appreciate that. I've been really looking forward to coming on the podcast mostly so I could hear you laugh because <laughs> your laugh is the best. <laughs> I have, I'm just having so much fun already. Um, but, but yeah, you, I mean, you, you said it, um, career strategist and coach. I work with UX professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been in the UX world for a bit over 10 years. Um, I came from academia, from anthropology and went into consumer research and then user experience research. And, oh, I don't know. I don't have to go into too many details, but I've worked on all kinds of companies, all kinds of products, all kinds of different teams. Um, I've been a consultant, you know, have my own small business as a research consultant. And so I've, I've seen it all. It's been very interesting. And, you know, that's, that's why I like coaching and, and working with professionals now too, is because I constantly am learning about other people's experiences in the field. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's how I stay in touch now that I'm no longer a practitioner. Um, it's a never ending learning process for me. And, you know, yes. that's important in my coaching practice to make sure I'm, you know, aware of what's going on, what's uh, what the developments are, what practice looks like today. What are the challenges people are facing? That is fantastic. Amy, you just mentioned something that I think is a fan is a great jump off point because I talk to a lot of people. I think you do too. I'm sure people who want to transition into UX and they're coming from uh, a certain background and trying to figure out how do I make where I came from work with regard to UX. And I don't come across a lot of people. I have a love affair with anthropology (laughs) and you just mentioned, (laughs) I love all the ologies. (laughs) I'm an ology. I'm an ology. Especially the social, social science ones, psychology, sociology. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Please tell the listeners about the connection between anthropology and UX and how you found that to connect and how it aids you in, in what you did and in what you do. Yeah. Anthropology is the understanding of the human experience. Yes. What is it like to be a human being? That's it. I love that. And it's about <laughs> taking that understanding and solving problems and making things better. Mm-hmm. That is actually kind of, an evolution of what anthropology originally was, which was let's go study foreign cultures in different places and live with them for a year. And like, you know, write about our perspective on what we think things are like for other people, (laughs) you know, and that was just a very kind of colonial sort of approach to um, like researching people who weren't European you know, um, American, whatever it might be, non, non-white people, essentially. And that's where anthropology got started. And over time, it has, you know, really evolved into something that is uh, much more applied and problem-solving oriented, um, you know, very reflective on itself as a discipline. And so that is the branch that I came out of when I did my master's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to the Uni- University of Memphis um, so I lived in Memphis for a couple of years. They have a really great applied program there. And the purpose of that particular program is to train folks in 
um, applying anthropology methods, approaches, theories, concepts um, to solving real world problems, mm -hmm. essentially, whether that's in, um, you know, UX product development, um, uh, social work, medical uh, contexts, anthropologists go work everywhere. And so I had that foundation in theories and methodologies. It's a very qualitative, interpretive, um, but also scientific discipline. Um, and so the connection, you know, is, is pretty obvious. It's a really great background to bring to the kind of work that we do. Mm -hmm. But it did take me a little bit to shift into, you know, what does practice actually look like, especially coming out of an academic setting? Yeah. And what does it look like in user experience? And ultimately, I stopped referring to myself as an anthropologist just because it didn't really <laughs> make sense to people. Yeah. It kind of was a barrier sometimes. Um, you know, I don't I don't use that title that much. But yeah, it uh, it was a bit of a transition. Th the thing for me is even though I had this foundation in research um, and, you know, understanding human beings and, and social science, I had to do a ton of self-learning, self-directed learning, self -learning mm -hmm. in user experience. And not just research, it's like, what is, what is product design? What is human-centered design? What is UX? Like all of these different things, understanding the context in which I would be doing research as like a qualitative researcher, essentially. And I think that's, you know, one of the big gaps that people have to fill to be able to successfully move into UX research, say from academia or from social work, you know, whatever kind of role it is, you have to fill your knowledge gap and do the due diligence to make sure that you have the foundation. And if you don't really understand what design is all about, um, how are you going to effectively do research that connects into that? Yeah, that is fantastic. I mean, one of the things, and something just hit me when you were saying that, tell me if I, if I got this right, because uh, sort of delve into another aspect of this. Um, the issue of, to, for some, a not a very popularized word, uh, and that word is is that of empathy. Uh, mm. you, you probably knew where I was going, but <laughs> I thought you were going to say gatekeeping. Nah, not this time. <laughs> oh, we've got a whole show on on that one that's coming up. Uh, uh, yeah, we we I, I'm I'm actually doing my due diligence on that because I could I could record it next week. I don't want to. I wanted I want to dig a little deeper and look at the gatekeeping a little bit more. Cause in short, as I keep saying, it's really all about uh, quality advocacy advocacy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all it is. And then people say, you're a gatekeeper. And they don't realize if you look at the subtitles, I joke about somebody saying something and then there's a subtitle and they're saying, when they're saying you're a gatekeeper, they're saying you love quality. So they don't realize that they're the enemies of quality when they call us gatekeeping for taking a stand on quality, but that's really where that's going to go in general. That, and, and I, I not jokingly, but I, I flat out tell people if it wasn't for the ISO association, the international standardization organization. And I, somebody told me that it doesn't really stand for that, but that's just the way it came out. If, if they didn't standardize the shape of an ATM card, we have a lot of trouble getting our money out the bank, you know, and a, you know, so just using it as an example that everybody can relate to, they looked at the quality and they, they press for it and boom, you know, here we are. And, and the same thing happens everywhere else. And, and it's funny because people will complain about us being gatekeepers. I'll go down this path for a little bit. They complain about us being gatekeepers when we advocate for quality 
And then they'll, the same people will turn around and say, why can't we have UX certifications the same way that they have certifications with accountants and lawyers and doctors when they only have those because they respected gatekeeping? <laughs> so uh, until yeah. we respect gatekeeping, we're not going to get anywhere. And it's going to be a long time, uh, as I mentioned recently in a, a LinkedIn post, and I, I think I said it on the show with Dr. Giles recently too, that the when it comes to certifications and especially using those those disciplines as mo- as models or examples those those certifications are not available without education mm-hmm. they they piggyback on that first you get the education then you get the certification so it, i think we're a long ways off and maybe that's i do a, have a thought on gatekeeping go for it It's not something I talk about. I really have been trying to be an observer of the conversation around gatekeeping Mm -hmm. as, as it's called. I really like to understand all sides of this. And when I see people talking about it, I understand that there's a frustration about getting into the field or becoming a practitioner, but I haven't been able to understand fully like what gatekeeping is in their mind as it relates to quality. And so I I do agree with you about quality. I think that there's a lot of problems just in general in the education system. Um, You know, it's commoditized, um, you know, even higher ed has issues with prices going up for tuition. Like there's all kinds of issues, right? But I, I do think it is important for people to, again, going back to what we were saying earlier about, do you know what this world is about that you're about to get into? And can you come in and be like a, a good practitioner? That's, there you that's go. it. That's it. And the gate, like the gate isn't like, you know, a barbed wire fence. Exactly. The gate is like a garden gate. It's wood. It has some plants growing on it. There's a little, you know, latch that you need to be able to open. Maybe there's like a lock that you need to have a key to. But that's it. You know, you can you can see beyond the gate and you just need to be able to get to get through the gate. Um, and, and it's it's not you know, no one's trying to like block anyone. Exactly. From that. Yeah. And it's funny because that's what I found a lot of the people that I that I've queried. That's their mindset. Uh, I had somebody tell me once, Darren, do you know what a gatekeeper is? And I'm going, dude, I mean, he said that because he didn't like the I was calling for people to be qualified. And I wasn't giving one definition of qualify. That didn't mean you had to have a degree. It didn't mean that you had to have a whole bunch of experience beforehand. I have hired people in the past who had no UX experience. All they had was the passion. They had the the basic little synonymous here, a little overlap. They had the drive. Mm -hmm. They they were willing to be taught. They could they could be molded. They had a really good level of self-awareness because as I did on one of my other uh, episodes, actually the longest series I've ever had, I think the EQ series is going to dwarf it a little, maybe a little bit when we're done. But it's like, if you want to be a UXer, you don't just get this epiphany that you want to be in UX and then you just jump in and that's it and you're on your way. Um, When you go to school to try to get admitted to a school to be an accountant, there is a qualification process as an applicant they try to make sure that you are aligned with what the school is about, that they'll be proud to have you as a student. Nobody calls that gatekeeping, but that's, that's, it's the same thing. You have to make sure you don't want to just get into UX. Are you really up for this? This is not 
as we like to say a lot, this is happening, just saying it's a whole lot recently. This is not unicorns and butterflies and cotton candy over here. Mm-hmm. It, it is a discipline that requires a lot of self-awareness. It requires thick skin. Uh, it requires a lot of dutifulness, uh, passion for excellence, and a, an extreme sense of selflessness. Mm-hmm. And when somebody mm-hmm. lacks those things, and we haven't even started talking about the work yet, when you <laughs> these, these are personal qualities that and this will really take me down. I'm gonna keep myself from going down another street that I would go down. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why even this part of the reason I'm doing the EQ series is because a lot of people we fail today in UX to a great extent, whether it's on the individual basis, a team basis, or the discipline at large, we've in its perception, we fail because we fail when it comes to EQ. We don't fail with our wireframes. We don't fail with our prototypes. We don't fail with our research. At least sometimes we don't. But actually, a lot of times we do because too many people don't know. I want to do research. and they don't, Do you like the blue button or the red button? Okay, I'm done. And they drop the mic. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And, and then when I, when I say, are you kidding me? Then they get mad at me. No. And, and then people, I just, <laughs> they don't know. They Like there's so much information out there, right? It's really hard to make sense of. I'm thinking like 10 years back, I had to like bust my ass and work really hard to get into this field. And it's the same today. Yes, it's it the is. literal same. Yes, and it is. And so even though our field <laughs> has evolved, it's blown up. The challenge is still the same. Yes. You know, I had a I had a degree in anthropology, a master's, and I still had a lot to learn. And yeah. I still had I had to really grasp what can research be. It's it's you're right. It's not as yep. simple as you know usability tests, and and that's it. And very basic stuff like, you know, do you know what inductive and deductive reasoning is? Like, nope. I think that's important. <laughs> like, it's not a common thing, right? And that might sound um, academic, but it just is part of the foundation of understanding, again, what research can be. And it goes beyond, I think, a lot of what is um, taught in training programs. And so, you know, I really try to pay attention for that when I'm working with people. I, I refuse to allow people who are not qualified to apply for jobs, but I help them understand how to become qualified enough. Yes, so they exactly. might be bringing stuff to the table. Maybe they have a really relevant background, transferable skills, mm-hmm. a, a degree, whatever it might be. And it, is it a knowledge gap? Is it an experience gap? Is it a storytelling, you know, improving how you talk to people about yourself? I don't want to set people up for failure. You know, I don't want them to get their hopes up if they're not in the right place. And so I really, really care about that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Giving people a sense. Isn't that great, folks? She's a career coach and she (laughs) wants you to have a heightened sense of reality. What a novel idea, right? (laughs) Ooh. Yeah, applause from the crowd. Yeah, applause, <laughs> applause. Because people out there who want you to, you'll get a job. You're going to, first, let me back up. You'll learn everything about UX in six months. No, that is not the case. You're going to, one person said, you can learn everything about UX in seven days. Mm, no, 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 no. And so they set this really false they have the, they 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 instill they infect people mm-hmm. with a false sense of expectations, and then they also a, some a certain unnamed group of folks, which I won't bring up today, have a sense uh, also of giving infecting people, and I, I mean that literally and figuratively, 
with a sense of entitlement, that's what causes the brain, the uh, the gatekeeper accusations. And that you're trying to keep me out. No. And you just said it was tough 10 years ago. It was tough in 2005 when I was trying to break in full time. Mm. Mm-hmm. It has not changed. Matter of fact, it's worse. It's worse today. I have a harder time getting my foot in the door today as a 26-year professional with two master's degrees. <laughs> and, and almost the have, PhD. Yeah, and the PhD is coming. <laughs> and 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 people, they, they're, they're threatened by it. Um, a lot of people I've come across, they don't want to be held to a standard. And they feel that I act, I could work out and I'll tell this story. Somebody didn't like it. So what? Um, <laughs> they, I'm all about it. <laughs> people who ganged up on me, an entire 200 member UX team ganged up on me because I vaulted uh, uh, accountability to a higher standard. I got chewed out because I brought up the concept of, us learning about information architecture as a team and they got angry with me and then blocked my ability to ascend career-wise in the company because, and then I found out, man, 200 and only four of them really have experience, really? And that's where now when I was developing my concept of uh, posers, retrofits, and upstarts, that was part <laughs> of what happened to me because like, why would you guys not care about Information architecture. Didn't we lose million, a million dollars on a deal because it had bad information architecture? Wouldn't it help if the entire team, if we spent some time educating people about information architecture? And this happened when they made me go to Silicon Valley to take a course that they wanted all the, the management level people to take in the company. And I was a manager at the time, a UX manager, which I can't seem to get anywhere near that today. Again, they'd rather give that to somebody with three years of uh, three years of, of uh, clearing their throat, Harkalugian. They they have more experience doing that than they have doing UX. Uh, seriously, no no joke. They, they I mean, people. I interviewed once with someone, nine hundred people on their UX team, which as someone said recently is a major red flag because that makes no sense. And the stuff that they're putting out explains why there's 900 people on the team. That's where I get my concept of the UX hamster because everybody's running in the wheel, but nobody's getting anywhere. And then you the you interview this guy who would automatically become the senior UX practitioner in your company, and you want nobody to hear what he has to say. We're not gonna no. We're not moving this guy to the next level. And the person I interviewed with was had zero UX experience, zero, uh, and four years as a developer. No, read a few articles. Yeah, no education. You act no nothing. If that's who you want to promote, that's who you want to promote. But when people put those folks in a position of authority and shut the door, because if anybody's having the door shut on them, it's people like me. People who've been around for a while. We're the ones that don't get anywhere. The art directors out there, the average art director wants nothing to do with a real UX professional, so they shut the door on us. The developers don't want anything to do with us on average. And so that's where the challenge is. So that's why I told a bunch of aspiring UXers, you might as well just write it out, keep applying. Yes, it's frustrating to not get the job. I understand how the people who talk about gatekeeping and accuse us of being gatekeepers, I understand totally how they feel. And they don't realize I've been where you are, number one. Number two, I'm willing to do what I can to help you go to the next level. In a realistic <laughs> state of mind yeah. instead right. of one of entitlement. 
Well, there's, you know, saying before, there's a lot of misinformation out there, you know, and, and it's, it's hard sometimes to know what is a legitimate resource or perspective and not just like one person's opinion, but the, the breadth of experiences out there and what UX looks like in practice varies so much from team to team, company to company. And so I, I can't blame people for being confused. And if they are looking at, um, information from, you know, just a, a select number of people or organizations that will shape their, uh, expectations about Mm -hmm. how to get into the field and what it looks like to practice it. And if you're only looking at one slice, how do you know if that slice is accurate or not, unless you look at the breadth of things. But again, that's very difficult. It's time consuming, you know? So, so I kind of (laughs) understand like the confusion, but you know, how do, how do we solve that? You know, community organizations in UX events, people talking on LinkedIn. Like I think there are people who are trying to surface this information for people. You know, I, I think that's one way of, of going about it. Yeah. And, and to me, it's all, it's a little bit at a time. It It's uh, actually had a post this past week about, I didn't use the phrase, but the mindset is that of baby steps that mm-hmm. you can only do a little bit at a time. And, and, the, and when I put a little chunk, a little bite size, like it reminds me of those little bite size cookies, like McDonald land cookies. You got this, he just, you know, the bite size cookies come out the box and, and and when we give people bite size, okay, was that good? Did you like that? Here's another. And and we and in so doing, we build. If we someone made a statement, I'm going to quote somebody who made a fantastic statement. When we try to give people too much at one time, uh, the person he, he was he was backing up what I was saying. Matter of fact, this happened at the UX Chit Chat Hour uh, last week. Someone said that when we give people too much at one time. It's the equivalent of waterboarding. And Oof. some people, <laughs> so you got it. I, I, I wish everybody else would get it. Um, what it is. And we, we talk about doing UX and then we don't UX what we give. Uh, we don't make things bite-sized. We, we, we give things out with cognitive load that's off the charts. And then we expect people to respond. Um, in my instructional design days, my favorite book is still one of my favorite books today is a book called telling ain't training. Mm. And it's how a lot of people, cause when I was an instructional designer, I saw the same thing that's happening, happening in UX right now, which is one of the reasons I fight so much and instructional design bit the dust. It still exists, but it is a wounded beast sitting by the side of the road. Uh, I don't want to see UX go there. So I fight to keep the same thing from happening. It gets overrun by unqualified people, a bunch of people in leadership that don't understand the concepts and the the uh, the complexity. They don't understand how everything works, but they got to get something done. So they approve of things and they fill seats with bodies, but no, nothing really is getting done. We went, I've seen the same exact thing happen before. So if we don't take a stand and define things, it's going to, UX will end up in the same exact boat as instructional design. It's already happening to a certain extent. And and so back then, people would think that if you just tell somebody something that you, you've given them what they need. And, and, and so when we sit and we hit people with these soliloquy-oriented presentations, it is it good information? Absolutely. It's the same as a lecture in college. 
And when you get a lecture in college, you're not, you go sitting there and listen to a two or three hour lecture. You don't come out of that with this ready to rattle it off and ready to implement it and things like that right off the bat. The person goes back and then they digest it in chunks again. So that becomes my strategy. Can I give things out a little bit at a time? I have a, I have a gigantic treasure chest but I need to reach in with a tweezers or some forceps or something and pull out one piece <laughs> and give them that and be patient Yeah, that the person is going to, that's a big part of, instru- of, of teaching, which I love. It's funny. I came full circle, but you give it a piece at a time. I delivered a lecture this morning to my students at Harrisburg. It's all a piece at a time. And then when you put all the pieces together, then the puzzle forms a picture, but we can't do the puzzle in one setting. And so I, I wish that more people who were of my ilk with my history, because that's another problem. A lot of people don't give a, a lot of old OGs and UX. They don't give of themselves. Uh, a lot of them are angry with me because of the things that I do. And I'm going, <clears throat> why are you upset with me about what I did? But you're not upset with this other person about what they did. And what they did is hurting the discipline. And what I'm doing is helping the discipline. So we've got that dynamic that that we have to that we have to deal with so it, it, it's really wild today in in, in yeah. my in my estimation but i'm going to jump back to that word yes empathy that word yes <laughs> and and i know that and as with other things i think there I've, I've heard several uh people make statements about empathy and what it is, what it isn't, why we should embrace it, why we shouldn't, why we should throw it out, why we can't get anywhere without it. And and when I hear all the different presentations, the different arguments, and taking an academic perspective, an angle from it, because I want to hear everything. And then when we hear everything, and then every once in a while somebody throws out a hypothesis and we're going to bring that out, I want to hear the, hear the null, I want to hear the alternative. And, and I want to examine things and put everything in the balances and weigh that weigh it. And then that's when I talk, I don't, I have a rule. If you don't know, don't say, uh, and people will criticize me, but they don't know what I had on in my mind when I said something. So they really can't, then they're disavowing and they're not disagreeing. They're disavowing. Um, so, but I won't go down that rabbit hole either, but the, the definition that I share from Adele Lynn in the current EQ series is my absolute favorite definition of what empathy is. It's not that stereotypical uh, being in somebody else's shoes. That That's too, I don't like the lack of, of specificity. It's too simple. Yeah, it, it's oversimplified, yes. But I do like that she said, it's about looking at something from someone else's perspective. And while somebody may say that those two things are synonymous, I think that the perspective, that operative term, alone of perspective gives me what I need from a practical perspective to enact things mm-hmm. that are associated with empathy. So that, so go, so, so tying that back into anthropology, I really think it's really critical for, even if there's a course and I might even propose this at some of the places where I teach um, because you don't see psychology courses in UX educational programs. You don't see sociology courses. You don't see anthropology. And and these are some of the schools of thought. I took a critical thinking class. That's probably one of the favorite classes I ever had when I was in school was critical thinking. I took it at the undergrad level. 
I people need to go through things like that. Uh, UXers, yeah. UXers, yeah. because it shapes who you are and it helps you to become selfless because you spend so much time looking at things from other people's perspectives. Yes. And <laughs> you know, that's, we, we talk about training in order to get jobs, degrees in order to get jobs. That's not the only purpose of education. And that's part of the problem of yep. education in a capitalist system is that we talk about it in terms of getting training to go get a job to make money and, and, you know, produce labor value and money for other people. And education is about yeah, critical thinking, yep. writing, like understanding ideas, you know, theory, all of these things, um, especially in the liberal arts, you know, the humanities, the sciences, you know, it all comes together. And so that's kind of a bummer when I see people talking about training just to get jobs. But I think it also highlights how short condensed training programs might be lacking in those particular areas, which I think is what really makes yep. a good UX person. Yep. You know, that's, that's essential. <laughs> I'm not saying you, you know, can't get it elsewhere, but it's something that's lacking from the discussion. Big time. Here, here's a, here's a well off the beaten path response that you just triggered. Remember when we were kids, really little kids and, and, and then, but it was in retrospect that we learned this, that learning playtime, recess was one of the most valuable parts of our coming up. And we had no idea uh, that recess, how we play, who we play with, how things go down when we play. Um, that's a big DEI component truth be told. And, and even education is a huge opportunity for DEI. People would not have to put the stress on it that they need to if those things were executed properly. And if people understood when you go to school, you're going to learn tricks of the trade, but you're also going to learn how to collaborate. You're going to, you're going to learn how to respect other people. You're going to be in a class with people that are not like you and you're going to have to learn how to succeed uh, in conjunction with them, sometimes partnering with them, sometimes in opposition to them, but you'll learn how to do it respectfully. And how many people go to school and come out with that frame of mind? Mm -hmm. Instead, they come out and, and we always joke about the things that you experience in work are the very things that you weren't taught when you were in school. <laughs> and those are the things that make you jump jobs and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's just funny that, you know, we need that that type of, it, 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 you know, we can't talk about it. If they don't learn it at school, then that's what people like me have to catch you after the fact and bring it up. But we need to be more, more diverse. There, we need to be more uh, collaborative. We need to be the I, the EQ thing. I, I have lobbied for more EQ, driving more EQ into classes that I teach. Uh, we can't just teach the subject matter. We need to teach the there's the direct subject matter and there's the indirect part of the experience that helps to broaden the learning experience as a whole in my mind. So that's why I try to drive that and, and have these drop, forget all the formality of the teaching. Let me help you with, I want you to get from me in my professorships. I strive to make sure that people get the lesson on paper and the lesson that's not on paper. So mm -hmm. we can truly be better at, at what we do and, 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 and to, just, I mean, I'm just big on learning experience. I coined the phrase, didn't even realize it. I missed that boat. 
<laughs> but because I was using that for a long time, and somebody said they came up with that in 2015, I went, oh, oh, I think I missed my millions on that one. But shoot, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think even if you made your millions on that, you would still be, you know, working in UX because you're just so I, you perceive that. See, I love that. It. Yeah, I love that. Somebody I, who can pick up on on things about you that that I always love to see that because yeah, you're absolutely right. I said if. If I inherited, I'm not a, I'm not a gambler, so I wouldn't have played the lottery. I tell people that. What would you do if you won the lottery? Well, that I, I would have to go somewhere and really check myself because I don't gamble. But <laughs> if I came into a ton of money, I wouldn't stop working. Mm-hmm. And nobody mm-hmm. would know that I had the money. Mm-hmm. I just don't change. That's also a standard rule. I'm always the same person. The same person you see on the podcast now is the same person you see on Debbie Levitt show is the same person that you see putting the post up on LinkedIn and the same person you run into at the gourmet donut shop. I don't change at all. My, my boss said that he loves that about me that I'm, you know, I'm, and I'm just here. Yeah. You're genuine. <laughs> Wouldn't have yeah. it any other way. And, and I think that that, I think it speaks to EQ because I'm a huge EQ advocate. Uh, there was a riot. I don't know if you ever heard this. There was a riot, by the way, when I gave that little EQ test to a group of people once. And when they found out what their score was, as soon as they found out what my score was, uh, yeah, I almost got lynched. So, but <laughs> just because they were just mad because my score was high and theirs was low, but they proved that their score was low. <laughs> you know, what? I, that reminds me, though, what you were saying about empathy. You know, I, I like how you defined empathy, perspective, understanding perspectives of other people. But the things I would add to it are you have to care. You actually have to care about what other, yeah, what other people think. (laughs) And you have to believe that it is valid, even if you disagree. Yes, absolutely. And people have such a difficult time respecting Someone else, oh my God, you're about to get into another part of my EQ with that because I'm doing one whole segment on sociopathic behavior in UX circles. But <laughs> Ooh. Huh. yeah, because it, 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 it's that's going to be interesting. It's killing us. It's killing us. You don't you don't understand. It, it goes back to disagreeing, disavow. So I am bringing it up uh, that that they'll hear me say something like I did. I did a talk on. Heuristics. The the talk is called Heuristics, the Holy Grail of UX, and how that everything we do should go back to heuristics, which ties into usability as well. And if we have that as a, I say it should be the first thing out of a UX person's toolbox because it can inform our design. It can be a hugely formative factor. It even has some summative qualities, Mm -hmm. but it helps us understand. I mean, why are you doing research? I saw somebody recently said they did research on something that I already knew to be a heuristic. And I'm like, okay, that was a waste of time and money. Uh, if we did that, we'd be able to do research faster. We'd be able to pinpoint the most. We would only research things that were heurist- already heuristically proven because we needed to validate something for a stakeholder. But we'd be so much more informed and we'd be able to bring value, especially when we get in those what I call UX train hopping scenarios where we can't do all the research. That's in a perfect world. Yeah. In the real world, there's a lot of times you're not going get to get to do what you would really like to do. So if you need mm-hmm. to bring, I got the UX train hopping metaphor from a movie that I hate. I don't know if you ever heard me talk about this, but that, that whole uh, divergent series, I hate, I call it detergent. I hate that movie series, <laughs> but the, um, and how they have the, the group called Dauntless that was always running around and jumping on trains. And I went to see this movie 
And I watched these dauntless people jumping on these trains. And then I forget, I forgot I was at the show. And I started thinking about how that in doing UX work, a lot of times we have to jump on moving trains and we don't, we can't take the train back to the station. We have to bring value from that point. In fact, I think I talked about it on UX in the ninth hour in that episode uh, of the podcast. And it's, it's, I'll probably reshare that, reshare that next week. But the, we, if you know heuristics, you can do that. So anyway, I go- that's a really, that's a great <laughs> example actually of um, what could help someone getting into research, you know, make that transition more easily. Yep. Yep. So let's say you've done academic research on, you know, some topic, you're an expert researcher, you know, you have a PhD, a master's, whatever, but you don't have the UX research context and language and concepts, the methods, whatever, you know, learn heuristics and then that will enable you to like do your first project more effectively because you can like, you know, ground your research in something that actually relates to user experience. And that's an easy one, you know, like that's an easy one to add to your, your toolkit to help make that transition. You you just remind me of something else that came up at UX chit chat hour the other day that, and this is, this is an initiative that I have. I haven't been able to launch it yet. But, and some people are really, when they find out about this, my LinkedIn mailbox is probably really going to blow up. But there's, there are ways, and, and it's something I think is going to be of great interest to you, so we can, we can run down this path as well, that there are ways for people transitioning in the UX, leveraging their prior experience, there are ways for these people to ramp up, and even people that are already practicing but need to be more grounded in their UX practice, they don't, they know about it. They already have the position. They're not doing well. They, some of them don't feel confident about themselves. We can help alleviate all of that because all we need to do is identify where you are. And then this short path, if you're a UI person, for example, this, and this came up last week, if you're a UI person and you're trying to get better at what you do from a UX perspective, and you understand there's a difference between UI and UX, Heuristics is one of the ways that you do it. When the person becomes more heuristically sound, we can take that person down a learning path that makes that person so much more stable and so much more valuable. Getting We're getting from point A to point B, we shorten it. I'm talking about shortening yeah. that productivity and that transitional phase by 90%. But it has to be focal because I'm one of the few that's actually a trained educator. I've got five instructional design certifications training-related certification is going to put the PhD on top. So that'll be six. And I know what it'll take, and I'm a subject matter expert, to help the person transition. How can you be more valuable in UX spaces? How can you be the person that helps the, the stakeholders understand we need to do more to support our UXers instead of saying we need to get rid of this UX department, which a lot of them are saying right now, whether we like it or not. Uh, but so many people are faking it till they make it when you can take that same energy and do something more substantive mm-hmm. with it. Because that's wasted energy when you're faking it. I mean, even an actor, when they say cut, the actor stops. You're talking about putting on an act and keeping up an act. That's not only is it unethical, but it's draining. And it's pointless because at the end of the day, your hand is, is still empty. You have a handful of sand. You thought that you had donuts. You had a handful of sand now because everything disintegrated. So I really think that we could help people. I've, I've got some some proposals on the table. They'll, they'll come out over time 
there's some things from really some things that some people might consider to be a, a bit on the radical side. Um, and here's one. Here's a new one. You're the first person who's going to hear this. No, actually, I talked to Eric Shoemaker. I said this to Eric and Michelle on that show. The whole UX writing movement needs to be stripped down to become a UX generalist. Because what mm-hmm. I have seen, there was an article the other day that somebody shared about what's going on in UX writing. What, what's, why is UX writing so important? So I went and I looked at it. And they had like six or seven things that UX writers do. Everything that they listed, we used to do as UX generalists prior to 2013. Um, that's why the UX writer position didn't show up until recently because it's been advocated by, by people who don't know, who don't have a history, a knowledge of the history of UX. Everything that they do, I used to do. It's interesting though, because there are, fewer generalists and more specialists and there are more jobs than there were, you know, 10, 20, whatever years ago. And so I think part of it has to do with the specialization, you know, and if you leave content up to random people on a team, it it might not be so good. So I do, you know, UX writing, um, content strategy, content design, like research ops, these specializations, I think especially as teams grow can be helpful. They can be. What's going to happen is, or what is happening is those same people still don't know anything about the history of UX Mm. and they Mm -hmm. have no, they have no understanding. And so then when they come in contact with somebody like me, but I even had somebody once call me a dinosaur. Well, this dinosaur sure does put out a lot of fantastic work. I think you need to go. Honestly, I want the dinosaurs (laughs) to come back. We need to. We need, yeah. Matter of fact, uh, that was one of the other things that Eric and Michelle and I talked about. When the generalist, it doesn't have, it doesn't have, we're not calling for everybody to become a generalist. I think that the, the specialist thing is helpful, as you mentioned. It's just that in the midst of it, in the midst of the grass, a few weeds have popped up. And the thing about weeds is they drain the grass of nutrients and the whole field becomes wasted because weeds grow faster. And so as the weeds continue to grow faster, use this metaphor, uh, then, the, then the nutrition of the whole eventually is taken away and then everything dies. And you end up with a field full of weeds and the grass is gone. Literally that happens in real life. And that's what's happening to us as UX. So there has to be a return to a lot of the things that we used to do. I mean, on my, in my misinformation talk, I talk about how that when I was coming up in UX, we didn't have to guard against misinformation. Everything was that pure. You didn't start seeing misinformation until 2011, 2012. That's, I can date when, you, when misinformation started to become commonplace. Then it, ca- it continued to ramp up and it up and up and up. And then people were jumping on board, and, but they, didn't, they were being sold on how fast they could move or what they could learn and what they could do and how much money they could make. And so they had all of this stuff they were reaching for, but they had, it's like building a house on sand. Another metaphor, they were building their houses on sand, but there was no substance. There is no foundation. So you have a lot of people, and then a lot of positions started popping up. Uh, a lot of trends, hiring trends started happening. And, and all of those things are hurting us. Um, I, when I saw what those UX writers were doing, I'm like, wow, they have no idea that everything that they're doing 
is stuff that we were already doing in 2005. Now, some people weren't doing it well. I had a person I talked to about information architecture. He said, because um, he reached out to somebody else to do the uh, calls to action and the headings. But like, if you learned UX the right way, you would understand that. Okay, we need to make sure that we, this is labeled properly. We They would know the heuristics that that say that if you click on something, the destination you go to should have the same label. If you click on something in the global nav and you go to that page, whatever you clicked on, it, it, if it said ABC French fries, when you get to that page, the heading on that page should be ABC French fries. So that's a heuristic. But Is that like, your new restaurant you're going to open up? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> a quick example off the top of my head. The people who got upset, uh, when I was mentioning, I did my talk on heuristics, I, and I didn't finish saying what happened. Somebody went back to their company a bi- at a big creative agency raving about the talk and a bunch of people on her team got angry, refuted what she said and blew the whole thing off. But it wasn't because what I said was incorrect. They don't want see, we got too many people. And this also started happening around 2011 to 2015. And now it's become the norm where we have all these people coming in the UX I know this is a, a hill that, that I know you have to deal with with all the coaching you do. They don't want accountability. They don't care about the right way to do things. I want to be a UXer. I want the check. I, I've kept people from getting UX titles, having their jobs converted into a UX fill in the blank just because they like they think that UX is sexy, so they wanted a title that said UX in it. They weren't interested in doing the work. They weren't interested in going back and and valid revalidating that they should be in this discipline nothing like that and so it was that's those things continue oh and the non-uxers keep running ux departments as this stuff continues with an upward slope then the health of the discipline continues on a downward slope and so people got to learn hey we used to do that i know what you're saying as a ux writer i'm not saying that what you're doing is not bringing bringing uh quality to your team i'm not saying that either but it, it pre-existed you. And until you learn how and why, and we do have to write the ship on titles, we, we, that's another battle we got to fight because it's creating problems, especially for people that don't do UX, that are looking at us, that judge you by your title. They don't have anything else to go by. Mm-hmm. So when the title is, you know, something somebody pulled the, pulled the letters out of a hat and made up a name, that creates problems because cre- we're the baby. We're still, we're still forming. And so there's too many people. We, you, the, the chances of us going into a meeting where people don't know who we are is off the charts. The potential is off the charts, but they understand everybody else in the room, but they don't understand us. That's a problem, especially if the person who's with us that does come into that meeting doesn't represent the discipline properly. Now that gets even worse. And that, that's why I fight to help to offset that a little bit at a time. <laughs> the, the key really is for people to have a holistic understanding yes. of this world. Yes. That's really what I think it is. Bingo. And that's it. You know, I want to say most people would want to do that. There are just so many, again, the, the confusion, the misinformation, you know, you have a, a scale of one to a hundred some people are on one and some people are on a hundred in terms of how they define UX yeah. and the practice of UX. And 
So I can understand someone coming in and being like, oh, I think it's number five or I think it's, you know, 74. <laughs> like they don't really know. And there's essentially infinite information out there. Yeah. And that's that's the problem is how do we help people understand, you know, how to take in and analyze <clears throat> and then synthesize this information yep. to make good decisions, to know that they're qualified to be prepared. And, and, you know, that's, that's just a huge challenge. Right. Yeah. And so that's kind of, I mean, that's a, an interesting question here is how do we help people know what resources are legit? How, how do you, what, what's the, what do we recommend people do to even figure that out? And that's part of my profile there. That's part of what <laughs> I do <laughs> in my pieces. Uh, I, I did a talk on misinformation, uh, what it is and how do you manage it? Um, how do you digest what's going on out here from a UX perspective? How do you judge things? Uh, matter of fact, in my UX cycle of excellence, steps one and two, cover that. If mm-hmm. people get steps one and two down, then they naturally develop, you develop a, an organic filter. And, and uh, I talked about this once and, and I talk about it again uh, recently on LinkedIn that like count, people who study counterfeit money don't, they don't develop their skill of identifying counterfeit money by studying, by studying counterfeit bills. They develop it by, they develop that filter by studying what's accurate. So the more, that, so likewise, the more that we spend time being exposed to and learning what, what's sound and what's not, it's the only way it's going to happen. Um, and then fortunately, but unfortunately, it happens one person at a time, one moment at a time, and it is a huge uphill battle, and it's very thankless. Uh, and people like me, we deal with a whole ton of trolls and a bunch of ungrateful people who, who frankly, who don't know that if what I'm trying to do, me and other people like me, and I'm not the only one, if me and other people like me, if what we're trying to accomplish would be supported, do you realize what would happen? Do they realize what would happen to the discipline? Do they realize what would happen in companies abroad? Uh, and But instead, you got people campaigning because they want to be celebrities. We have a UX celebrity problem. We have um, a, a massive uh, anchoring bias problem. That people, the first thing that they heard, they think that that's true. Um, we have a huge isms problem and by isms, racism, sexism, ageism, cronyism, uh, just general favoritism. Uh, these Don't things, forget capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> Another one. I got to like remember the root that. Of all these issues essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so those are things, that's part of what we're fighting against. I, I won't be naive about it. And I have to tell myself this. I'm talking to myself when I say this. Don't be naive, Mr. Hood, and thinking that your work is going to stop these things. Uh, again, and that's why I go back. One person at a time, one moment at a time, one thought at a time. And if I can say something that helps a light bulb to come on for one person today, I think the, I think a lot of light bulbs are going to come on when this show airs <laughs> for a lot of people um, that – when people face that, then they go, wow, you know what? That's right. Uh, and the, the people who chase me, I'm talking experienced, seasoned UX people who, if the purge was a thing, I'd be dead already. 
just because of seriously, just because of my, I mean, things that people do to me off the charts, crazy that I won't even get into today. We're going to have a nightmare segment where with a few of us, and we'll talk about some of the nightmares, but the thing I shouldn't experience the things that I experience. I'm, I'm not getting paid for this. I'm giving of myself and I'm making sacrifices because I think it's that important. And, and again, not to make a name for myself, I couldn't care less. Uh, I've been fortunate to do some of the things that I do that have been high profile, but I'm not trying to do that. People, they, people can't, I didn't apply to speak at TEDx. They came to me. I didn't apply to teach at Kent State. Somebody came to me. I didn't apply to teach at Lawrence Tech. They came to me. I mean, they, these, I have people come to me the vast majority of the time because I'm actually shy. I know you're laughing. I don't know if you ever heard that. I'm actually shy. And so people don't know that. <laughs> if I don't have to talk, I don't. And so it's not about that. But if, man, if we could just take the, the discipline forward, that's exciting to me and the prospects of it and seeing the light bulb come on. Every once in a while, every time I see it, 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 it puts wind in my sails. So, so I find. What do you think is the bridge between the gap? So folks who are really trying to help people understand, here's what this is all about. And then on the other side of the bridge, you have folks who are excited and they want to get in and they, they want to, you know, do good work and be qualified. You know, let's assume good intent on both sides. Mm. How do we bridge the gap? if there is an, an antagonism between these two sides? It's, I see two sides of the coin on that, in that, for one, it's it's a case study bit. I think that when people hear certain stories, it is those stories that help people to latch on to something and to see something as, as valid. Uh, I've had people who fought me tooth and nail come around over time. And, and who will, they talk about that light bulb moment for them. And when they decided, when they decided to stop fighting and they stopped and had a moment that they looked and said, you know what? That is true. And you know, I do need to do this. So, but it all came through case studies. So I think that those, those case study scenarios are of so much value. And so when people can, can have those case study moments, and experience it, then I think the value, the value comes into play. Then there's the flip side. And that's just the part that keeps me grounded. The, the realist side, and I'm a realist in general that some people will never, I, 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 I used to be an idealist and I used to think that everybody was going to always be willing to come and do the right thing. Uh, almost cost me my, my life once that makes you think differently when that happens. And it was a, a light bulb moment for me. Some people will never, ever change because of it's, and it's all because of the reason why there are hidden reasons why some people are what they are. And, and those hidden reasons, uh, if some of us knew those hidden reasons, we would get away from those folks hook, line and sinker. I know just cause I just happen to be one of those people that knows how to dissect stuff like that. And I'm a closet anthropologist and sociologist anyway. So I, and I study people to the max, to the nth degree. And uh, there's other things I could say that I won't hear, but I, I do have qualifications that, that allow me to do such. The, some people, they're not going to change. They have too much at stake. And you can hit them square between the eyes with truth about the situation and they still won't change. So, so some people are not going to change and I'll embrace that. And all I'm concerned about is the people who will. 
and and if enough of us change, if enough of us subscribe to the right, enough doctors subscribe to the right thing, which doctors don't run the show in the medical world. So somebody got something right. There are still witch doctors though. Uh, and and <laughs> I hate to use the same parallel, but there's UX, UX doctors and there's UX, UX witch doctors. And right now, the witch doctors outnumber the doctors. Sadly. I have one other question <laughs> for you. Something I'm really curious about. You've talked about light bulb moments. Yeah. You know, people trying to get in who have had light bulb moments about what UX actually is and what it takes um, you talked about your own light bulb moment um, that you just you know discussed a moment ago. I'm curious, have you had any light bulb moments from interactions with folks who you tend to kind of have conversations with uh, from kind of like a misunderstanding perspective? Like what have you learned from this other group of people that you're trying to help? Um, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed, uh, is a, it, it goes back to EQ. That's been the big thing for me. And, and that's another reason why I'm such a big advocate. I'm the first person that I ever heard talk about the connection between EQ, uh, EQ and UX. Cause I've delivered that talk like four times now. I delivered it for, uh, UX South Africa a week ago. And that was the fourth time that I've delivered that talk. And that's the first time it was recorded. So now we get to share it for the first time. Uh, and then we've got it doing it on, on the, on the podcast as well. That's the big thing that's missing. And of course there are layers because you have the self-awareness component, which is one of the two biggest ones are the self-awareness. Well, there's more than two, but the self-awareness is huge. People lack self-awareness and they don't want the self-awareness. So that's a problem. Um, there is no, you, you said this also earlier, there's no empathy. People refuse to see things from the perspective of another. Um, there's this, and then beyond the two, there's the sociopathic factor. And I think there's a lot of sociopathy going on in UX today that is hurting us. And, and so we can't, you can't fix your, t- if you have a nail in your tire, you can't fix it until you get the nail out of the tire and you can drive around on that tire for a long time. And, and you still are at risk. And one day, if you wait too long, you could have a blowout. And I hope you're not on the freeway when that happens. It, it, and it's that say here and with metaphors again. But it's the it's the same thing. And so, uh, and also I'm about to do my, I think two weeks from now, I'll do my segment on EQ red flags or next week after the week after this, because we're going to air this right away. The EQ red flags, there are nine and I won't mention them today, but there, when you see these things, it lets you know that there's an EQ deficiency. And then there's an honorable mention list after I get through the first nine. And, 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 so, and, and the thing is, I see these things all the time. And, and you know, frankly, the, in many UX circles, the UX folks are a murderous bunch. And, and you can't really excel at UX without EQ. You can get some things done but you won't excel because you have to, without EQ, you can't be selfless. And so that the selflessness benefits the, it benefits the users, the customers. It benefits the business. It benefits the stakeholders. It benefits your internal UX team. It benefits you as an individual. I mean, why not? Why not subscribe to the, the carrot is too large. I got to have that carrot. There's too much at stake. 
But when you have no, when that, that EQ is not there, that's when we get the dysfunction. We get the mistrust. We get the burnout, the UX burnout. We get the people who are, look, who will, are willing. This is actually one of the literal red flags. Um, uh, what did I call it? Um, I can't remember the exact phrase, so, but I know I know a synonym, destructive ambition. People who are willing to get over at, at the expense of other people. Uh, there's a lot of plagiarism going on in UX today. You know, these things, this, so it all, but all of those things, I trace back, I connect the dots back to EQ. That's the thing, and that's why I, I continue to tell people about it and hope more and more people, they subscribe a few at a time, and then other people, they see it, and to then when I say it, I have a bullseye on my back. And the next thing you know, I've got, you would not believe the things that happened to me because of my willingness to say things like this. It takes a lot of bravery <laughs> to put yourself out there and share a perspective that other people may not agree with. Yeah. Yeah. And if they had, you know, Darren, I don't believe you. And here's why. One, two, three. I'm like, oh, you know, that's a good point. Let me go back and take a look at that. But that hasn't happened yet. And then there's the people that I say, because I time box a lot of my statements. Like when I go on Debbie's show, I time box myself. So I never give myself unlimited time to say something. So if someone feels that, or if I post something to link in, I time box myself because I'm dealing with the constraint of characters. I'm dealing with constraint of, you know, physical real estate that I have to say what I got to say within this space. Uh, and and then, pe- then, then people will come and they'll say something about what I didn't say instead of commenting about what I did say. And, and I know that to be an act of trolling, especially when the same people never support anything that you say at any other time, but then they want to nitpick. They want to be anal, anal with anal retentive instead of being anal. And that, that hurts the discipline that hurts the discipline. People don't realize what they, that they set us back when they come at people like me, when they come at Debbie, you know, and you have no just cause when you put other people on a pedestal and, and uh, even some people, somebody I know who's listening to this, to this episode, who told me that they like my podcast and is likely stealing things from me. That's destructive. <laughs> that's destructive. You know, and I can't, you can't block anybody from hearing your podcast. So it's just out there, but these things hurt us. And, but if we would be more, we have to be EQ to be more selfless. And if we were selfless, man, we would get so much done. We fast track UX's advancement. We have a a good, generous community in general, I think. Um, UXers tend to be pretty generous with their time because a lot of them, you know, it was hard for them to get in. They know how hard it is for other people to get in. So they give back and you know, it's, it's really great to see that, especially on LinkedIn and the UX community where people are having conversations and trying to figure this stuff out. There's a lot to figure out with where UX is now compared with, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. Again, like the diversity of people coming in and perspectives and the differences in titles and definitions of what people do and all of that stuff, it doesn't make it easy. Yeah, it doesn't. You just made me think about another one. We're going to talk about this another time. 
and I can have you back if you want to be a part of the discussion yeah. about what's going on. The because uh, we're we're running out of time. We we're we're having such a ball, and I happen to look down at the timer. We gotta bring we gotta bring this to a close. I love. I'm glad we went off script, Amy. I'm so glad we went off script. Uh, but we are we are gonna have another conversation in the not too distant future uh, to talk about issues of diversity and what's going on in UX from a standpoint of how we're progressing, where our challenges are, uh, where the headaches are. We we were we were talking. I may be. I don't know. I might be the senior African American uh, UX professional anywhere. I just never met. If if there is one, I like to meet them because I because I like to meet whoever. Um, but again, sort of borrowing on, I said you wouldn't believe what I go through. I go through a lot of what I go through just because I have what I have learned. What I've started calling melaninitis. That's what I call it because <laughs> um, they don't want to hear it coming from yeah. somebody of color. And, and and I have a project I'm working on called If I Was White. Mm. That if I was white doing the same thing, I wouldn't mm. I wouldn't have a full time job because mm-hmm. I'd be spending too much time going around helping everybody with their UX uh, uh, departments and helping them grow. But instead, uh, I get um, stonewalled, and it's usually because of the color of my skin. It has nothing to do with the content. I look forward to learning more about those experiences. Oh God. It's it's amazing. And and then they don't realize I achieve what I achieve in spite of the degree of opposition I face. And nobody catches how much character that takes to do that. Instead I get ridiculed for job hopping or why don't you stay anywhere too long? Well and well, because this happened and this happened and you know, keep people keep changing things and they fail to realize that a life, the lifespan of a UXer is short anyway. It's like dog years. If you if you're in UX and you work somewhere for two years, it's equivalent to ten. It actually is because of UX maturity and a whole host of other things. But mm-hmm. then, bec- then it's even more complex for me uh, because people will fight against me just because I'm black. People try to tell Absolutely. me. People try to tell me how to send email. Can you believe that? I can. They will stop me and say, you know, this is how you send an email, Darren. And I'm just looking at them. Well, what? (laughs) But they do that because of the assumption that if you're black, you're ignorant. And and, and they know I'm not ignorant, but they can't deal with the fact that I'm not. So they begin to fabricate these scenarios in their minds, and then they execute them as if they're legit. And I'm trying to thrive in that environment with people doing this stuff to me, to have to navigate around that and get your job done, people would not believe uh, the how what it's like to do that. I actually, I actually took told somebody, I said, somebody else makes it, make the money, I don't care. Please come up with a VR solution that allows people to experience what it's like to be a person of color. Mm. <laughs> that would be phenomenal if somebody would finally do that. Oh, please take, please steal that idea. Do that one. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that you talk about this stuff. Um, you know, there are conversations going on in UX. Um, Vivian Castillo, for example, in Humanity Center, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, she's doing amazing work around these topics that you're discussing, um, talking about these experiences that, that people have and trying to really get people to understand here's what's going on and what can other people do about it who have some kind of privilege that they can share 
And so, yeah, we need more discussions and perspectives around this stuff. It's so important. I'm very thankful for the few people who do understand and they are, I hate to uh, quote Martin Luther King Jr., but there are some leaders out there that will judge people by the content of their character when it comes to doing UX instead of the color of their skin. I get shushed at, I've been shushed at UX meetups. Didn't say anything wrong. <laughs> uh, I've been ostracized, the ganging up a 200 depart, UX person department trying to keep me from getting a directorship. And even though I consulted to move their office, I was the consultant that helped them to move their office from Silicon Valley to another a location. But then when I tried to get the directorship, I wasn't allowed to pursue it in the name of con- maintaining continuity within the department. When in fact it was actually a race, a race thing. People in power are threatened. <laughs> it's amazing. So anyway, but I still get to help raise the UXs of tomorrow by being a professor. That's one of the reasons I do it. So um, that's why I'm, I'm on parallel. And I love the things that you do as we begin to wrap up here, the things that you do, those things are close to my heart. And I love the fact that somebody will give of themselves to drive that. And that really genuinely cares about the discipline that, yeah, that kind of stuff is worth its weight in gold. And I hope that more and more people, part of the reason that I'm having you on the show today is to highlight you. And so more people can learn about you and come to you. So, so many people come to you that you got to hire folks. So, because <laughs> it's, it's needed because there's too many people that do things for all the wrong reasons. And I believe that you're doing them for the right reasons. And I absolutely love and respect that. Thank you so much, Darren. I really appreciate that means a lot to me. So as we wrap up, closing words for you, and I'll do the regular sign-off, but what closing words do you have for the audience today? You know, I, I just love to meet new people, connect, have conversations, learn, grow. So I um, invite anyone to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, that's, that's really the main thing. The community building and relationships is the most important for me. Fantastic. Fantastic. So everybody... Look up Amy Santee on LinkedIn. Uh, When I share this podcast on LinkedIn, I will make sure to tag you. So people who may not have, uh, well, you're going to see this at the same time. So when you want to connect with Amy, click that link. That'll take you over there. Reach out to her and connect. And and, uh, you guys have at it. Thanks, Darren. And for the overly sensitive people, you guys and gals have it. You know, guys was always. People. Yeah, that's all it means. Yeah. Y'all. Yeah, I like y'all. <laughs> yes. I'm from the, the so-called south of, of, you know, in Florida. So y'all is definitely part of my lingo. Yeah. And I, I think some of that stuff's culture. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Detroiter, born and raised here. Uh, yeah, and so we always said that. So, But I get it. I understand where they're coming from. So I, it'll take me a while to get that right. So uh, if I say guys, forgive me. And give me some. Be patient with me while I get get that together because I got I got to reverse decades. Well, you're you're practicing what you <laughs> preach, Darren. You know, being open to learning and growing. Things change, and that's a yeah. beautiful example of that. Yeah, yeah. But this has been awesome, Amy. I look forward to having you on the show again. We got to have another big. We're looking to have a big panel on. We're trying to try to figure out how we're going to do that. And we can just talk and go at it. And this was an extended version today, but we love doing that. And people don't mind the extended versions. And so there's a lot, as long as people give value, it's like clicks. Who cares how many clicks? As long as you get the value. Who cares how long the podcast is? As long as you get value. 
there's a lot of value in this show and I'm, I'm excited and I look forward to even producing this so it can be uploaded and, and folks can share it. But, but folks, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you again for taking time to join us here on the World of UX. So signing off now, this is your host, Darren Hood of the World of UX. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.